0: Um, just because we got a lot of new folks, let me give you a little bit of background. I know last week some of you heard, uh, but just so you know who it is that's speaking to you. Um, I've always loved science, um, grew up trying to figure out how things worked. Um, and the, the neat thing about science is it's literally the study of the creation. That, that's ultimately all science is, how it operates, the the systematic method by which God made things so we could understand it and things would happen in certain ways and we could use it and control it. You understand, God um, gave two commands to the very first two people, Adam and Eve. He said, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And he's never rescinded that. Children are always to be valued. Uh, And the second one was to take dominion over creation. That means to study, understand, control. Uh, It doesn't belong to us But we've been given the privilege of doing science. So that's who I am. I worked for almost 30 years for Dow Chemical. Um, I think because uh, mankind's been made in the image of God, we also are creative. Came up with lots of, of ideas that turned into patents over the years. So I had a very successful career. Walked away from it, coming up on about 10 years ago now. And now what I do is speak and teach and try... To help our culture understand what they're not being told uh, in the textbooks and the museums. And, and how well observing the world around us fits exactly what God has told us is the reality of the past. And that's where I want to start tonight. I want to start with what I like to call the Great Commission in the Old Testament. Now now we all know the Great Commission to, to go and make disciples. Um, You know, baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But in the Old Testament, God also had a job for every single believer. And and I don't think it's been rescinded either. Um, And this is what it says. This is uh, Psalm 145, verse 4. It says, The job of believers, one generation shall praise the works of God to the next generation. And then it's even more specific. As adult believers, our job is to declare God's mighty acts. Now, I think, I I just want you to kind of ponder on this for a moment. If we, as Christians throughout America's history, had just done that, I mean, we had really taken that seriously, most of the universities were started, the Harvards and the Yales and all these universities started in the 1700s were taught, started, to teach and educate pastors so people would not be deceived about reality and truth and morality and, and things of the Bible. But it's all drifted away. So by and large, the museums, the universities, all the way down into the grade schools, the public education, does not teach the mighty acts of God anymore. And they haven't for probably 100 years or so. Now, that has enormous implications, but let's just kind of, we're going to talk about geology. What's geology have to do with Christianity? But you're going to see it has enormous implications as we go through the evening. Um, But these are the mighty acts of God, and I know some of you have heard this, but some of you may not have. Uh, The the big things that God has done, obviously the very first thing the Bible talks about is creation, and God says ten times, creatures reproduce after their own kind. Tree, you know, he says trees only make trees, in essence, in common language, that's what he would be saying. Fish only make fish. Birds only make birds. Cattle only make cattle. Creeping things only make creeping things. Grasses only make grasses. You see, there's no blurred continuum. God made very specific types of creatures with lots of variety within that type. Lots of ability to vary within a type. That is the absolute opposite of what everybody throughout our education system is being told as reality. And you can't have it both ways. If that's true, then evolution can't be true. If evolution's true, then what the Bible states in a clear way is not true. They can't both be true. I think it's just helpful to point those things out to people. And as we um, talk about different subjects, and I won't even get into it in this four-part series. The reality of biology and the reality of the fossil record absolutely confirms one creature has never turned into a totally different body structure, has never happened. Well, following that creation, the next big event that happened on earth was what happened to this perfect creation. After six days, God said, it's not just good, it is very good. Now, that's not a description of a creation filled with death and one animal group wiping out another and diseases and cancers and all sorts of issues. And yet the world would say it's been that way for millions of years. This, every one of these mighty acts of God, you know, this is the way to present it to the world. Okay? We, 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 I think we, because we don't start with the mighty acts of God, people have a misconception of the way things are the way they are and they have a misconception of who God is. You see, the gorgeous beauty and creativity of the world, and the biological world, and the universe is God showing us his creativity and love and power. Now, now just think logically with me. God did not want us to be programmed, so he had to obey. He wanted us to choose to obey. And by the way, obedience and love are like the flip sides of the same coin. If, if, if you, you don't love someone enough to obey them, you don't really love them. At some level, okay. So we chose to reject God. Uh, he gave us that freedom. Okay, it's a reality, a real event that real happened in real time in real space. You could just go back in time, and there is Adam and Eve choosing to disobey God. Okay, that. Now at that point. In essence, we're saying, I don't want to obey your rules, God. I want to make the rules. In essence, I don't want you to be God. I want to be God. That's, that's what sin is. It's as simple as that. And we all do it, whether we you know, want to admit it or not. Nothing has changed since Adam and Eve. Now, here's a perfectly holy God who is also totally just. How much respect are you going to have for a judge who one young man just beats another young man to a pulp and they get dragged into court and the judge says, oh, he has a good heart. He didn't really mean to do it. Just go on with your life and don't." there's no penalty, no consequence, nothing. You'd have no respect for that judge. See, God is the perfect justice. So there has to be consequence for our sinfulness or God can't be God. So what's he going to do? We are now separated from him for eternity. We are sinful and He is not. He could wipe out creation and start over. God is God. He could have done that. But this is what he did. And it just can, It blows your mind when you realize it. He decided, in total justice, he would bring death into creation. He would totally destroy, corrupt and, and mangle a perfect creation. Not just mankind is going to die, but everything is going to wind down, genetic diseases, animals starting to eat one another, thorns, everything is going to get progressively worse, Uh, diseases will build up, things are going to go extinct. All of creation, stars are going to supernova, all because of our actions, so that we wouldn't live forever separated from him. See, even the curse is an act of love on the part of God, so we wouldn't be eternally separated from him. And then he knew he was going to come and take that penalty on himself. Understand when people understand Christianity at that level? It totally changes their very view of even who God is. But what's going on all around us is they're convinced there's been these millions and billions of years of death and disease. It's just the way God made things, so that's just God. He's God who made death and disease. It's a distortion. But then how do you fit everything we see on this planet around us into a biblical worldview? All of these rock layers. You understand there are layers of rock 20,000 feet deep? Think about that. Four miles deep. We find layers of quartzite down into these deep pits in, in the southwest America. We find layers of sandstone, you, you know, three, four, 5,000 feet deep. How in the world, you start to understand why people could think, well, there must have been enormous periods of time to have created all this stuff, and if we can't explain it as Christians, well, then we look totally non-credible. Why does the world look the way it does? Why are there trillions of fossils in all these rock layers? How could there ever be that many animals here on the earth at one time? See, there are answers to these, and they're not that complex, and it all deals with the worldwide flood that we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, And then after the flood, people spread across the earth because of the evil in mankind. The most ruthless, the most vicious, the most conniving, the most convincing will tend to rise to the top, enslave other people, force that viewpoint on others, and evil will spread very, very rapidly. And out of love, God broke the people of the world into multiple languages and nations, to slow that spread of evil. And then he started to bring the most momentous event of all the universe, the one who made the universe entered into it and became a human being to take death upon himself, to take that penalty we deserve. I just, I, I know you know, I know you guys know this, but present it as reality. It's not a bunch of religious philosophy. It's not a bunch of You you, you know, just storytelling. This is the history of this planet. And if we don't act like we believe it, how could we possibly expect the world to act like, to to be interested or to to start to believe it? You see, see, it's the whole story of Christianity. And tonight we're going to concentrate on this one, the worldwide flood, because that really is key to everything else You get this wrong, you're going to misinterpret the rocks, you're going to misinterpret the fossils, you're going to misinterpret the time frame, you're going to misinterpret everything if you leave that out of your thinking. Now, this is the other alternative. You deny all that, you've got to come up with some other explanation. And it's going to involve enormous periods of time. Cosmic evolution, stars made themselves. We talked about that last week. Absolute impossibility. And by the way, all this stuff is in my book and my resources, and I'm going to stop just, just for a second and mention that, because I always run out of time at the end. All of my resources, gorgeous, hardcover, color, every page is a different topic books. Uh, this one is about the 10, actually the 50 best evidences for creation that have never been refuted from the three major areas of science, biology, geology, astronomy, and physics. This one's about all the world cultures and how they fit into a biblical time frame of a literal creation about 6,000 years ago here on earth, the whole universe. And this is a devotional where 365 days a year there's a different evidence with Bible verses tying all the stuff we learn around us to uh, God's word. And I'll talk about the video series at the very end. But what that does is help you refute all this and understand it's nonsense. Chemicals could never come alive. Bacteria could never turn into people. Fish could never turn into land animals. Uh, you know, Dinosaurs could never turn into birds. It, it doesn't happen, and it's literally impossible. But this is the damage. This whole story, this evolution story, if you boil it all down, it means bacteria have turned into people, but in the process there's always been death and disease and extinctions, and one animal group wiping out another, And if you want to throw God in this process, which is what a whole bunch of Christians do, mainly because they've never been taught anything different. It's simply the only thing they've ever heard. Because someone hasn't taken the time to show them how the evidence fits into a true biblical model. It means God is the one responsible for all that. If you're just logical, if that time exists, then things have been living and dying for millions and billions of years. And death has been around for all that time. See how that distorts everything else about the Bible? Now, people are trained to think in a certain way. When we are told something over and over and over and over again, our brain literally forms kind of a framework of, well, it must be true, and we just kind of quit thinking about it. Now, when, whenever an example of what we've come to believe is true comes in front of us, we just immediately accept it. And we don't continue to think through any potential problems It becomes our framework of reality. Well, children are taught over and over and over again, in all the museums and on the TV shows, and it's in the movies and it's in the textbooks, that fossils prove evolution. And when they hear the word fossil, they immediately think millions of years. And when they hear millions of years, they think about fossils. They're just connected. Now, what do we actually find when we look at fossils? turns out we don't see fossils forming. Nowhere today do we see fossils forming. I'll give you a great example. In the 1800s, in the 1830s up to the 1870s, buffalo hunters went out onto the Great Plains, and there they were these enormous herds of buffalo. And buffalo have a certain set of instincts where they follow the lead buffalo or the lead buffaloes. And the buffalo hunters, if they could identify that and shoot the lead buffalo, the herd would just kind of sit there and mill around instead of stampeding or running away as, as the guns were going off. So they would sit there on the hill, and they would literally wipe out 10,000 buffalo in, in a matter of an afternoon, a group of hunters. Just shoot buffalo after buffalo after buffalo. Then they'd go skin them, sell the hides, and leave everything else to rot. There were an estimated 100 million buffalo roaming around on the Great Plains in the 1800s. By the 1880s, they were at the point of extinction. Uh, We had essentially wiped them out and just left them to rot there on the Great Plains. There's not a single buffalo fossil to be found. hundred million of them died. All their bones are there. Not a single fossil. You understand, to make a fossil, you have to take something and bury it really, really deep and really, really fast. Because even if it's only a few feet under the ground... Worms and all sorts of fungus and all sorts of uh, scavengers, they just rip it apart. If it's laying on the surface of the ground, wind and erosion just even destroys bones to the point they disappear. Uh, Bones left from from a deer out in in the forest, within a few years they're gone. They're, They're no longer in existence. When a fish dies in a fish tank or in the ocean or in a lake, it is totally recycled. It does not form a fossil. And yet the rock layers of this planet are filled with trillions of dead animals and plants. And their body has been replaced, molecule by molecule. The carbon has been replaced with with calcium and silica and minerals. And what is left is something that looks like this. I'm going to pass this around. This is kind of one of my favorite fossils. This is called a trilobite. To the best of our knowledge... They're, they're completely gone. They're, they're, we don't find them anywhere in any oceans. Now, occasionally, we, we do continue to find things we thought were extinct. Uh, but as far as we know, it's not. And if you, when you, you feel this, you're going to see, that this is kind of a heavy critter. Well, that's because his body is gone, but everything that used to be his body has been replaced by rock. Uh, so just take a look at that. Very, very detailed. Uh, you can see his eyes and his little compound eye and everything. But if a clam or something like a trilobite dies today, it doesn't form a fossil. Now, there's an immediate clue. Something in the past is very different than things happening today. See, this isn't rocket science. And yet, kids aren't trained to think in that way. They're trained to think, oh, whatever we see going on today has always going on in the past. It's always going to go on in the future. There's been millions of years. There'll be millions of years. There's never going to be a judgment. I'll just live, eat, and drink, and be merry and do however I want to be happy in this life. It's the way they think, because they're trained to think that way. Now, the other thing is that fossils don't take a long time to form. Uh, In the 1920s, over in Australia, they had a mine that shut down because the price of of whatever they were digging, whatever minerals or metals they were digging went down. Well, they reopened it in the 70s. uh, And in that mine, they found a hat that had been left kind of in a wet, mineral-filled area of the mine, and it sat there for 40 or 50 years. When they came back and reopened the mine, turned out every molecule of leather had been replaced by silica and other minerals, and it was solid rock. It's the original model for the OSHA hard hat. No, I'm kidding, but. Yeah. So, it, you know, it doesn't take long. It just takes the right conditions. Lots of water and lots of minerals dissolved in the water flowing past organic stuff. And it can be turned to solid rock very, very rapidly. So the whole idea of fossils have to be millions of years old is fantasy. Uh, and the conditions after what God describes as Noah's flood would have been absolutely ideal to permeate sediment filled with water and filled with dead creatures and turn those creatures into fossilized animals. Now, the people, you know, the paleontologists, that's somebody who studies animals that used to be alive, and their their bodies are found in the rocks, paleontology. The anthropologists, people who study the bones of ancient human beings in the rock layers. They're not stupid people, and they're not, like, their goal isn't when they arrive at college, wow, I'm going to... Do everything i can to deceive everybody around me they're just trained to interpret whatever they find in a certain way it's called a bias and we all have them i am very very biased i came out of college believing god was non-existent i'd been trained everything could be explained without god i was very strongly biased to reject anything that dealt with the bible uh I now have a different bias. It's uh, I strongly believe, and I believe I know, everything God has revealed to us is absolutely true. Uh, now, I, those two viewpoints are going to interpret whatever they find in two completely different ways. It's not a matter of whether anybody's biased or not biased. It's which bias is the best bias to be biased by. And it's what God has told us is going to be the right bias, the right viewpoint. Now, if you assume, enormous periods of time, if you assume that one day there weren't animals, the next day, oh, there were a bunch of fish and birds on the earth. The next day, there were people. They just appeared. Now, that is going to sound ridiculous to the world around us because they are trained that couldn't possibly be true. The only alternative to that is that something turned into something else that turned into something else that eventually turned into people. And if you're trained to be totally skeptical of the idea that there could be a literal creation, you're going to accept evolution and you're going to interpret whatever you find in the rocks in a way that agrees with your belief. You understand that? It's not a matter of dishonesty. It's a matter of being trained to use your brain in a certain way. So we all have the same trilobites. We all have the same rock layers. We all have the same earth that we live on. The question is, how did it get to be the way it is? Uh, And I think if you just approach it in that way, and you take time to just explain to people why we interpret things the way we do, it's going to have much more of an impact on their thinking than just insulting them and saying, you're wrong, and the Bible's right, and you're stupid, and how could you possibly believe this? You're just going to put a wall up, and you're never going to get any closer to leading them to the truth. Jesus didn't treat people that way. He intrigued them with questions, and he got to the root issues. Now, same thing. If you assume an old earth, and you've got to have an old earth if evolution is true, and you've got to have some sort of something has happened to create all those rock layers, that looks like evolution if there is an old earth. They go hand in hand. We'll talk about that very specifically the fourth week of the seminar. You're going to interpret the data consistent with that. If you assume that the one who created the entire universe ought to be able to communicate in a clear, straightforward way, and that's exactly what he has done, you're going to come to a totally different conclusion about these rock layers. Evolutionists starting in really the late 1700s leading up to the middle 1800s when Charles Darwin came along, they started looking at the rock layers and thinking, 1,000 foot, 2,000 foot of sandstone? Man, if you look at this river at the bottom of that valley, it must have taken hundreds of thousands, maybe a million years to have carved all that stuff out of there and carried it downstream and sorted it out and, and laid out this layer of sand that turned into sandstone. And they started thinking that way. And then they find animals in those rock layers, fossils. And you do find a general tendency to find kind of sea creatures down in the lower layers. And you do tend to find more mobile fish a little further up in the rock layers. And you find coal seam in a certain very wide band of the rock layers. And then you find more land animals further up, uh, dinosaurs spanning a very large uh, area of the rock layers. And... um, The very mobile, more mobile mammals and uh, such, and you find very, very few, almost no remains of mankind uh, and if you do, they're way, way up at the top. Now, nowhere on earth do you find this sequence of rocks. There's not a single place on the entire planet. It's all been pieced together with a story to try to explain how things got where they were. But there is these general tendencies. Uh, Well, Charles Darwin came along and he said, well, i You know, we find sea creatures and really simple things, sponges and stuff down low, and then we find more shellfish kind of stuff. Then we got reptiles, and they kind of branch off into trees and land plants and such. And he kind of lined it up in what he calls the tree of life. And that's still taught as a fact. It's considered to be the foundational principle of biology in every biology class in the world today. It's called common descent. The foundational principle upon which all biology is taught to students. Common descent means we all came from a bacteria. We're just nothing but a really smart bacteria. But it's taken a lot of time to turn that bacteria into us. Now that sounds silly to this audience, but trust me, the idea that a God fully formed a human being sounds just as silly to somebody in a college classroom. You can be trained to believe anything if you're just told it over and over again. Now here is the biblical viewpoint. This flood described in the Bible totally, absolutely pulverized this planet. And I'm going to, next week specifically, I'm going to give you example after example after example of what moving water can do. I'm just going to show you one of them tonight, and then we're going to get into the Mount St. Helens talk. But uh, what would have happened is all this rain and all this water movement and all this stuff is going on It is turning rock and sediment and dirt into little particles that are being washed into the ocean. Enormous amounts of them. What is going to be buried first in the oceans that existed before this flood? As all this sediment is being washed into these ocean basins, it's stuff that lives at the bottom of the ocean. It's going to be the heavy stuff. Things like clams, things like coral, things like trilobites. They are going to be trapped and buried the deepest. And as the sediment continues to move in and things are moving around and there's lots of volcanism, we'll talk about that later, it's going to change the water's temperature and lots of things are going to go extinct. And fish are going to die by the hundreds of millions, if not trillions. And they're going to be buried in sediment, rapidly collecting sediment, very, very deep. And all these plants, every blade of grass, every tree, everything that existed on earth is getting ripped up and washed around in huge mats of vegetation, eventually being waterlogged and buried, they're going to turn into coal seams. And the things that's going to escape the last are the most mobile animals. Uh, And I suspect dinosaurs are amongst those, but they're going to be much more slow and easily trapped, and probably living in given locations, trapped regionally, while mankind is very mobile. They're going to escape the longest. They're going to hit high ground and be you know trying to survive to the very end. And what happens when things die and they're not buried by sediment? The waves, the, the abrasion, the wind, it just rips things apart. And, and they're just going to be scattered and turned back into dust. I think that's why we don't find very many human fossils. There may have been tens of millions of people living at the time of Noah, very easily. There was almost 1,400 years from creation to the flood. And you see how fast populations grow. There would have been a lot of people. But only eight chose obedience and found sanctuary that God provided. Now, I want to show a little film to show you the power. I want you to get a picture of moving water. You think, water flowing over something? What's the big deal? Uh, This is a film that was taken um, by a man standing on a six-story tall building in uh, 2012, when there was, a, um, there was a shifting of rock, an earthquake, under the ocean, in the Pacific Ocean, uh, the, the um, one plate of rock dropped only about 20 feet. I believe that number is right. Uh, it created an enormous wave that headed toward Japan and slammed into the coast. It damaged one of the reactors, if, if you remember that. This is now coming up on five years ago. Um, but it also pushed the water inland on one of the rivers. So the water you're about to see is flowing upstream in a river carrying a lot of rubbish with it and then it starts flowing over a road into a little village. Okay. okay, you just you just hear in the background flowing water. But here is the water flowing the wrong direction in this river, carrying all this rubbish with it, and it's just starting to flow over this retaining wall that holds the uh, water back from the town. Now you know, I'm going to refer to these hills later. These are maybe 40, 50 feet high uh, at most, maybe not even that high. Now here comes the water flowing across this parking lot. Notice this warehouse is sitting here, sitting alongside the river before the water rose. This whole film runs for about six minutes. So this whole sequence you're about to see only lasts, took about six minutes. Now, let me see if I can pause this. Okay, I'm going to pause it right here. I well, want you to know, look at this, little, this is a little Japanese village, okay? There's several hundred, uh, maybe two, three hundred homes, two-story homes. They're sitting on foundations. Some of them are concrete blocks. Some of them are wood. Uh, just a nice, peaceful little Japanese fishing village. And there's a little bit of water flowing into the village. Get that picture in your mind, and here's maybe a 30, 40-foot tall hill behind the village. So the uh, photographer, here in the background, he's getting really excited. Um, sees under, you wonder know, seeing the water flowing into his town. So keep watching as the water comes along. Now that simple little flowing water just picked up probably a 10 million pound building. Um, just water. What's the big deal? picked it up off its foundation, uh, carrying it over where it's gonna slam it against the side of this building. And uh, watch, it just, it just crushed it like a piece of paper, a just flowing water. All these are 2,000-pound gaylords full of products. Uh, the water gets up over top of this building, it would just reduce that to a bubble. Now watch as he turns and pans it around so he now gets another look at what's happening in the building. Every house, every structure, every foundation, every building has been picked up and is being moved. That is about a 20 foot rise in water level flowing into this village, reducing it to total rubble devastation. Now, imagine the force of water that's not 20 feet thick, it's 8,000 feet If you did nothing but push up on the ocean basins of this planet, push up on the Pacific Ocean Basin, push up on the Atlantic Ocean Basin, and geologists, geophysicists from a biblical perspective that have studied this think that's exactly what was happening. When God said the fountains of the great deep broke forth, there had to have been enormous, unimaginable amounts of magma pouring out from underneath the earth shoving the waters out of the ocean basins that existed before the flood. So you just smooth out the face of the earth. The hills aren't as high. The oceans aren't as deep. There's enough water on this planet to cover the entire planet 8,000 feet deep. That's how much water is on the earth. 8,000 feet of water covering the whole globe. That was 20 feet. Imagine a 1,000-foot wave coming through. Next week, you're going to talk about cavitation and all these processes that would have been reducing everything to total rubble on this planet. It's why all these rock layers are there, the sedimentary rocks over the planet. Why don't you just put that in your mind, the power of moving water. Now, one of the, I think, the greatest tragedies of Christianity in in, in the last hundred years is almost every denomination, be it Methodist or Catholic or Presbyterians or uh, Episcopalians, in their theological colleges, almost every one of them say, the Bible doesn't teach a worldwide flood. It doesn't say anything about a worldwide flood. It was just a local flood. When they said the whole world was covered, they just these were ignorant old people from the Old Testament. They meant the world that they knew existed. There was just some big flood. That's what they were talking about. Now, this is the tragedy when we do that to God's word. I, I want to read exactly what God has told us and I want you to listen to what he has told us and I'm just going to read about seven verses and this starts in Genesis chapter 7 starting with uh, verse 18 and just listen okay this is the account of the flood the waters rose and increased exceedingly upon the earth and the ark floated on the face of these waters they rose greatly upon the earth, and all of the high hills on the earth, okay, all of the hills on the entire earth, and, and all of the mountains under heaven were covered. Now, if you wanted to describe a flood that was covering the whole earth, and you wanted people to clearly understand it, is there any way you could be more clear than that? Every mountain under heaven on the entire earth was covered by water. That's what it says. Local flood? <laughs> How do you get that out of there? And then God goes on. And the waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 20 feet. This is an English translation of the King James or the original Greek or Hebrew. Every living thing that moved upon the earth, the birds, the livestock, the wild animals, all creatures that swarmed the earth and all of mankind died. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air were wiped out. And only Noah was left and those with him on the ark. And the flood was on the earth for 150 days. And by the way, God goes on and later says, I'll never send another flood upon to destroy the earth. There have there, been thousands of floods. And what flood has ever lasted 150 days? And where has it ever rained continuously for 40 days and 40 nights? You see, detail after detail after detail, you can't possibly miss what God is trying to tell us. The whole earth was flooded. Now, that has unbelievable implications as we interpret the rocks, the fossils, and the geology of this planet. And if you leave it out of your thinking, you're going to misinterpret them. That's why God was one to be so clear, so we wouldn't come up with a silly idea of millions of years of death and that being his nature. Furthermore, every culture in the world has a story of a flood. Every one. W- I mean, all these ancient cultures. You, go, you can Google this. You can go on the internet and you say flood legends, flood stories, flood accounts, and you'll come up with a list of, of two, three hundred different cultures. Where missionaries have went to the Fiji Islands or to Brazil or out into China, you know, hundreds of years ago, or up into Russia or over into, uh, you, you know, um, Egypt or the Alaska uh, Inuits, all these cultures, they have a story of a flood, and usually they, it's such distortion. They talk about a basket being saving mankind, or they'll talk about, you, you know, uh, you know, a great river that over flooded its banks. But, it was, but there's these common elements that mankind brought it upon himself. There was great evil. It was a judgment of God. There's often a rainbow involved. There's usually animals taken on the vessel. Because everybody came from Noah and his family, all the cultures, everybody. All the cultures of the world were all human. There is no, there's no races. There's the human race with the variations God's built into our genetics. And we all came from Noah and his family, and the story, the account, was remembered. So that flood's the bottom line. If you deny the flood, you're going to misinterpret the rock fossils. If you deny the flood, you're going to misunderstand why things are packed together in huge beds of fossils. If you you leave the flood out, you misunderstand why there's all these erosional canyons over the earth as water rushed off this newly laid sediment at the end of the flood. You're going to misinterpret the time frame. You're going to misinterpret how the ice age fits in. You're going to misinterpret everything. Now, let me give you the, I think, most dramatic example in in our lifetime, the most well-documented example of exactly what massive flow of sediment-filled fluid does to the surrounding landscape. And it happened in 1980 at Mount St. Helens. Now... Bring the lights down even further, because this is the rest of this is a slideshow. Uh, The the darker it is, the better things show up, and it's very very picturesque. Now this is Mount St. Helens in 1979. It's um, about 14,000 foot tall. It is snow capped year round. Beautiful resort area. I'm going to be talking a lot about this lake down here at the base of the mountain. And I actually filmed um, a whole hour-long teaching out there this summer, uh, sitting here on Spirit Lake. Now, Mount St. Helens is a volcano, and it's one of a whole bunch of volcanoes in the Pacific Northwest. There's actually something called the Ring of Fire that literally goes around the entire Earth. It goes the whole length of the Atlantic Ocean, circles down through um, you know, the South Pole, comes up through Argentina, Peru, Chile. Uh, up through um, the San Andreas Fault of California, uh, all the way up to Alaska, where it's a very volcanically active ridge that cuts deep down into the earth through the rock layers. And these volcanoes are a result of lots of lava that poured out and formed these cone shapes. Scientists would say hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of years ago, but in reality, those formed subsequent and during Noah's flood as lava was pouring up uh, all through the flood and maybe for hundreds of years afterwards. Now, in 1979, the act of be- the volcano became active, and there was ash that would kind of puff out and drop on top of the snow cover. Here, Here's a little pit that formed and went poof, and a bunch of ash dropped on the snow cover. Uh, here's another little poof. The geologists, they just moved in in droves. I mean, this is a volcano to study in our own backyard. There were just hundreds of uh, geologists who were just stationed all around the mountain, Here's Twin Peaks that happened in early 1980, January or February, and a plane flying over for scale. Well, come May, you know, they had put survey peaks in the mountain, and they noticed the mountain was swelling, uh, because they had lasers pointed at these surveying uh, stakes, and they noticed every day it's getting about five foot bigger, and the next day it's five foot bigger. And then it's five foot bigger and bigger, and it's getting bigger and bigger, and, you know, we're on uh, a whaling ship. I'm sure the, the crew is saying, Captain, she's going to blow, she's going to blow, and they actually had moved everybody out. And uh, April, uh, I believe it was 20th of 1980, there was a plane flying around the mountain, uh, seven o'clock in the morning, full sunlight. Uh, there was a, a, a tremor, it sheared off the top third of the mountain, allowing, like, 800 degree Fahrenheit steam, just enormously uh, high temperature steam to literally pulverize the top of the mountain, combine it with all sorts of ash and steam, and it slid down into the valley. It was like a big flood, a really viscous, thick sediment-filled fluid flowing down into the valley, uh, and a lot of the steam would instantly melt and form water, that would lubricate things. And then a bunch of ash was free to come shooting up out of the mountain. Now, this is uh, what used to be the top of the mountain. It's estimated to be moving at about 80 miles an hour down into the valley. Um, These streaks you see are like pieces of lava and pieces of the mountain that were probably the size of this church, some of them ending five miles away. And and look, look at all the streaks. Just big hunk of rock after big hunk of rock just shooting way out into the valley. There was one of the uh, geologists, he's standing on a ridge, okay, he's standing on this ridge right here where I'm standing, this ridge is two miles away, that ridge is four miles away, and the mountain's about six miles away, and he's watching this big cloud of ash head toward him. So he's snapping pictures pretty quick, as fast as he can, I got this picture out of a magazine, that's why there's a seam here, Um, but now this ash cloud is is about um, four miles from him, and he continues to snap pictures, gets this picture, and he thinks, I think I have enough pictures. Uh, uh, and this is estimated you know, to be 400 or 500 degrees Fahrenheit, you know, way hotter than you bake cookies in your oven. Uh, he literally thought he was going to be dead, uh, jumped in his truck, took this picture out the window of his truck as he's trying to go down the other side of the mountain. The ridge, and these are some of the trees at the top of the ridge, deflected the heat upward. And he was able to escape alive with some of these classic shots. But here's the mountain in full eruption. And it erupted for four hours. Okay? For four hours, it's just spewing out. I, I mean, we're talking millions of pounds of ash being spewed miles into the atmosphere. Uh, they did a kind of a rough estimate. And, and uh, in comparison, they said this would be like one of the bombs we dropped on Hiroshima every second. The next second, atomic bomb. The next second, atomic bomb. The next, second, atomic bomb. The next second, atomic bomb for four hours. And that's one volcano. Now, before I show you what we can learn from this event and how this relates to the flood at the time of Noah, um, I need to put this in perspective. Okay, Here's the mountain in full eruption again. If you could gather up all the ash that was spewed out of that mountain in those four hours and and just kind of gather it all up, it would make a pile, kind of a cube, uh, one kilometer by one kilometer by one kilometer. Just think, mile. One by one mile by one mile by one mile. Okay. Uh, now, just 100 years earlier, uh, in 1883, there was a volcano in the South Pacific called Krakatoa. It put out 18 cubic kilometers of ash, so about 20 times bigger. This one volcano, okay, when it erupted in the South Pacific. It shot so much stuff up in the atmosphere that it remained there for two to three years. It changed the weather on the entire planet Earth for three years. It took three years for the average temperature to return to normal. That volcano erupted in the fall, or it, it was in the spring okay, of 1883. That summer, they had snow, like in Germany, in the summer, in June and July. In North America... They had crops failing in the summer because of cold. It was called the summer that had no summer. It caused all sorts of worldwide famine because of one volcano on the other side of the planet. Now, when God doesn't have to brag, when he said the fountains of the great deep broke forth, we can look at our planet, okay? Most of Australia is made from lava, enormous amounts of lava that poured out underwater, most of the Pacific Northwest, Washington, Oregon, is lava that flowed out underwater. A lot of Aust- Africa is lava that flowed out underwater. There were a thousand volcanoes, hundreds of times bigger than Krakatoa, all going off simultaneously during Noah's flood. The whole earth was pulverized. What you're about to see from Mount St. Helens is like taking an eyedropper and dropping a single drop of water in an Olympic swimming pool compared to... The swimming pool is like Noah's flood. The drop of water is the kind of things that happen today during Mount St. Helens. So let me show you some of those things. Here's the mountain before the eruption. Here's the same angle, same view after the eruption. Total devastation. See, this is the picture to get in your brain of what the earth looked like after the worldwide flood. But not just this little area, the whole earth. You understand, Noah was on that boat for about seven months, right around seven months. And then it landed on the mountains of Ararat. The waters were abating, flowing back down into the oceans. He sat there for, five, for more than five more months with all those animals. Like, man, I'd want out of there. I'm tired of shoveling this stuff out of the bottom of the stalls. <laughs> let me out. Let the animals out. I'm done finally. But had he let them out, This is what they would have faced. They would have never survived. But it doesn't take long for weeds and plants and vegetation to regrow. They were stunned how fast Mount St. Helens started to revegetate. It takes a matter of, I mean, anybody who has a garden, no, it just takes a matter of weeks. Within a month, it's all weeds. So in five months, there was time for things to regrow. But that's what the world looked like. Total devastation after the flood. That's how much of the mountain flowed down into the valley. It just is missing. Flood flow, uh, mass catastrophe into the valley. Now, here's a satellite picture. This is the mountain. All this sediment flowed down this direction. It kind of hit a ridge right here. A lot of it flowed all the way on down this way, kind of filling in this valley up to 600 feet deep with new sediment that used to be rock at the top of the mountain, and now it was pulverized and turned into like just little fine particles that resettled in this valley. Part of it went sloshing into this lake. Okay, it's called Spirit Lake. As the debris hit this lake, it shoved all the water out of this lake into a like 800-foot tall tidal wave that slammed into the surrounding uh, hillsides. It ripped up every tree right down to the roots, tore up every bit of soil, flushed it all back down into the lake, and eroded. Solid basalt, which is which is lava rock, with erosional ruts uh, almost instantaneously in those rocks. So, as the uh, as this stuff flow down into the valley, it's mixed with all this hot steam. Remember, I said it's like eight, nine thousand degrees Fahrenheit, and that steam gets trapped underneath the ground. Well, it's 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 going to find crevices and come together into these pockets, these steam pockets and then it bursts upward, and then the land will collapse downward where all this steam used to be. These are called steam explosion pits. This is an example of of one of these steam explosions, and these happen sometimes hours, sometimes as many as several days after the eruption. You know, the, the helicopter's flying by, and all of a sudden there's this poof, and a bunch of ash comes flying up, and when the ash settles, this is what the surrounding landscape looks like. Now, see how smooth this is? This is ash that has settled on top of sediment that's flowed into the valley. It used to be perfectly smooth all the way across. But as the steam burst upward, the land collapsed downwards. Now, what does that look like? I mean, just in general. You'd have a word for that. Erosion? People look at that and they say erosion. That's the thing that would come to their mind. Geologists are trained to think in this way. They even have a name for this. It's called the dendrinic drainage pattern. And they're all over the western United States. All over the world, you see these crevesty, craggy-looking cliff-like patterns. And they're taught, well, you know, as little grains of sand and wind and rain hits a, a sediment in a cliff, it wears away at the rock. And over huge periods of time, the rock kind of flows down into the valley, and then it gets carried away by more wind and water. And you form these erosional-looking landscapes. And it takes millions of years for this kind of landscape to form, the way they're taught to think. But guess what? It took maybe 10 seconds. Poof, the steam goes up, the land drops down, and there's your craggy, erosional-looking pattern. Didn't take millions of years, right in front of our eyes. It took a lot of energy and very little time, instead of thinking, well, it must have took an enormous amount of time and very little energy. But this is reality, right in front of our eyes. So here is, now this one didn't erode away into this craggy pattern, but that's a steam explosion pit, that's another pit, that's another pit. This was a soft, softer sediment. Here's a helicopter for scale. About two to four months after the sediment flowed into the valley, you could take a hammer, and you could go down into one of these pits, And once you brushed away a little bit of the loose sediment, you could pound on it, and it had turned back into solid rock. It's just like when you pour concrete, it's a liquid one day, and it re-solidifies. The the water, as it oozes out, the sediments cement themselves back into a new rock layer. So whole new layers of rock had formed in this valley that didn't used to be there, and they had formed very, very rapidly. Well, about four months after the eruption, uh, there was a very wet spring, And the water built up and built up and built up, uh, and late in the fall, the water broke through from pit to pit to pit to pit, and it formed an entirely new river valley that didn't exist before the eruption. So you have all this water that slowly drained out, and you could now see exactly what does the sediment look like that flowed down into this valley at 80 miles an hour. And the geologists, you know, they kind of figured it would be like sticking a blender in a bunch of mashed potatoes. You know, you just kind of blend them all up and you get this kind of homogeneous mess. But instead, as they looked up and down the river valley, what they saw were perfectly horizontal layers of sediment. This stuff flowed into the valley at 80 miles an hour, and it sorted out the stuff that came from the top of the mountain at that speed, and it laid it down in these perfectly flat layers. Now, where do we see those kind of layers? All over the country when we're driving down the interstate highways, we see these perfectly flat layers of sediment, except they extend all the way across the whole country. It would have taken a flood of worldwide proportions to have created them, but it's exactly what we find. And as you look closer and closer and closer, right down to these teeny little what are called varves, those are considered in the geology books and the training of the people who interpret this stuff to be seasonal events, ice core rings or you know little layers, they're considered to be summer winter interfaces. So if and actually they have papers where they've counted up a hundred thousand of these rings in certain lakes over in China or Japan or other places, and they'll say this absolutely proves there's been at least a hundred thousand years of Earth history, except it flowed into place you know in a matter of hours during the eruption of Mount St Helens or less. Uh, And it sorted things out, different densities, different particle sizes into perfectly flat horizontal layers running as far as the eye can see up and down the river valley. So you ended up with a little tiny river, stream actually, at the bottom of a great big valley. That river didn't make that valley. Huge amounts of time did not make that valley. It was a catastrophic flow of mud breaking through pit to pit to pit that carved out the valley very, very rapidly, causing massive erosion to happen and leaving the little riverbed at the bottom when it was all done. See, that's what happened around the world during Noah's flood. This little river at the bottom of a 600-foot valley, it's a one-tenth scale model of the Grand Canyon. There's the Colorado River at the bottom of a 6,000-foot deep valley, because floodwaters covering the entire planet were flowing through this area near the end of the flood. As the continental plates are moving around, I'll talk more about that next week, things are shoving together. You understand the Himalaya Mountains did not exist before the flood. The Rocky Mountains did not exist before the flood. The Alps did not exist before the flood. They are all made from sedimentary rock, rock that's made up of particles that have been refused and are filled with fossils. You know, we have seashells at the top of Mount Everest, How did they get there? It's not because there was 29,000 feet of water on the planet. It's those layers were laid down. The huge sheets of rock we call our continents were moving around during the flood. As India moved and slammed into Asia, it shoved up those newly formed rock layers forming the Himalaya Mountains in the latter stages of the flood. The Bible puts it very simply in Psalms. It says the mountains rose up and the valleys sank down. And that's literally what happened. Uh, Sedimentary rock is lighter. It's less dense. Uh, The ocean basin's basalt is heavier. It sinks down. And there would just be a natural, over time, near the end of the flood, sorting of the ocean basin sinking, the continents moving around, mountains forming, and uh, sediments moving around. Okay, two more subjects, then we're done. Trees just knocked down by the millions. And I was out there. Some of these trees, I, I couldn't even begin to stretch my arms around them. They were probably six foot in diameter. They were just snapped off instantly by that blast wave you saw coming out of the uh, of, of the mountain. And every leaf, every twig was incinerated almost instantly. And then the trees were snapped down. The bark was just stripped from them.
1: Like there, there, there's not
0: even bark on these trees. Uh, look at that. Uh, the whole up up to up to 15 miles away the trees were just slaughtered now about a million of these trees ended up floating on spirit lake see th- this is a big floating mat of trees now that looks like just little little pixels but every one of those is a tree that's probably 2 to 5 foot in diameter and up to 20 foot long and when the wind blows all these trees will actually blow to the other side of the lake, and as the wind shifts, they'll blow back again, and they'll just float back and forth on the lake. Uh, and, and many of them that are still there today, um, coming up on 30, 30 years or so later. Now, why do I bring that up? There's a teaching that is just absolutely permeates the thinking of our culture and the world. Uh, the, the the rock layers of the earth are just filled with coal. There's enormous amounts of coal on the earth. Uh, and And by the way if you could gather up all known coal deposits and how big they are and how the the mass of vegetation it would take to create coal, it would take probably about 10 times as much vegetation that is alive on the planet right now today to account for all the coal on the earth. But you realize our planet, is a large part of our planet is barren of life compared to what I believe... this planet was created to be. A large part of the polar caps, a large part of Canada, the tundra, the Siberian area, most of the deep ocean areas don't have a lot of plankton and vegetation. Most of it's along the continental shelves. Uh, Huge desert areas in Australia and Africa. So you could have easily 10 times more vegetation on this planet than we have today. If it was all destroyed and buried, that's what made the coal seams of this planet. It came from somewhere. And by the way, It's no mystery where coal comes from. You can take grass clippings, some banana peels, throw in a little clay as a catalyst. If you squeeze it in a laboratory with lots of pressure, that's going to increase the temperature automatically, but increase the temperature and exclude oxygen, open up the container in a matter of hours, and you'll have a hunk of coal. It will turn it to coal that quick. It's no mystery how coal forms. The mystery is, why is there so much coal in the rock layers of the earth? Uh, They call it the Carboniferous Period of the Earth. And you look in the textbooks, they will say, and you see dinosaurs always, you ever see dinosaur pictures? They're always roaming around in swamps. Why is that? Because we tend to find lots of dinosaur bones in the same layers where we tend to find lots of coal. And the only way to explain coal without a worldwide flood is it must have something to do with a swamp. You see, when a tree dies in a forest, it doesn't turn into a hunk of coal. When you cut your grass in your yard and you leave it lay, it doesn't turn into a layer of coal. To get coal, you've got to bury it really deep, and you've got to keep oxygen away. And the only place we find stuff today that dies, vegetation, and doesn't immediately just get eaten up by bacteria and turned back into soil is in swamps, because swamps tend to be very acidic, and stuff that die will just fall down and get submerged in the water, and you'll form a really thick layer of carbon-rich stuff that hasn't turned back into soil and hasn't decayed. And if you have a thick layer of carbon-filled stuff, and now you could just cover it with sediment and squeeze down on it, you could get a coal seam. And because coal seams are so widespread, it's taught as a fact that the earth at some point was covered with swamps. You get it? Was anybody there to see those swamps? No. It's all interpretation to fit a viewpoint that leaves God and the Bible out. Well, there was a researcher at the University of Pennsylvania in 1979. He was, he was a senior in the geology department. I mean, he was working on his Ph.D. Not a senior, but he was working on his Ph.D. As last year. And uh, you've got to like do some original research to get a Ph.D., and you've got to get lots of data, and you've got to write a, a thesis paper, and you have to defend it before a board of experts. And that's the process of becoming an expert in a given discipline. Well, this young man happened to be a Bible-believing Christian, but he didn't tell his professors that because there's persecution that goes on in our colleges. And if you go to a biology department and you say, I believe God literally made different kinds of creatures, you're very likely not to get a biology degree. They won't grant it to you. They certainly won't grant you a PhD. They don't want you in the club. It's just the way things are. They consider you stupid, non-credible. Uh, living in a fantasy world so he kept his beliefs to himself uh, talked to among his friends perhaps, but one thing he noticed uh, that when you drain a swamp, see all this black stuff that is peat, that is dead trees and dead vegetation that's built up inside of a swamp, uh, and it hasn't turned back into soil, it's still a real rich carbon organic matter but it's all filled with roots of other trees and worms and organisms that burrow in and amongst it, and it all gets blended up. Now, later, when we turn the lights back on, I brought a piece of coal. Um, I am old enough that I can remember coal being delivered to our house. Uh, and then when they would deliver coal, it would just break apart into like layers and sheets. It's like a bunch of sheets of paper that you just shove together. You can actually sort of, sort of see. There's, see, there's a little piece right here that's just a, it's just a piece on top. And it's all, coal always comes apart in these layers. And yet, swamps don't look (laughs) layered in appearance. So the appearance of coal does not match the appearance of a swamp, and yet everybody's told swamps are where coal forms. There's a disconnect. By the way, young people, there, there is so much to be discovered all around us. Don't ever think everything's been discovered. A vast majority of the world is is trying to figure things out from the wrong viewpoint. Start with the Bible. There's tons of discoveries to be made, uh, and this is what his name was Steve Austin. This is one of the things that he realized. So he developed a completely different idea of how can coal form. He said maybe there were huge flat floating mats of vegetation, and stuff would drop off of these big floating mats of vegetation and form these thick layers of peat. And then if there was a a flow of a bunch of sediment shoving down on the peat, you would form a coal seam. And this would explain both why coal exists in huge regional areas and why it has this layered appearance. And he collected all sorts of data, and he went to all sorts of coal seams, and he he created little models in the laboratory, uh, and he defended his Ph.D. in front of a bunch of experts. And uh, He didn't mention the Bible. He's just mentioning another alternative explanation that happens to line up exactly with what the Bible would teach us. Well, they uh, had two objections. They looked at his model and they said, well, this is one coal seam. Covers all the way down into Central America, up through Mexico, all the way to New England, up through Canada, up to Alaska. Uh, You know, covers a big part of the whole length of of, of the continents of the world. For your explanation for a big floating vegetation mat is what created this single coal seam the whole world would have had to have been covered by water. And they said, we all know the whole world's never been covered by water at one time, so it must not be right. You see, their blindness prevented them from seeing the absolute obvious. They couldn't go there and still believe everything else they need to believe about leaving God out and evolution and huge periods of time. Now the last thing, and this is the last topic that Steve discovered, was all these floating trees are bumping against each other at, at, uh, at Mount St. Helens. You had a million trees in a floating vegetation mat the year after he graduated with all these objections to his, to his work. So here's the mountain still smoking in the background. Here's Steve Austin and a diving buddy. Uh, and they decided, let's see what we've got underneath these logs. And uh, looks up at the logs, and down below them is just layer after layer of bark and waterlogged wood and little bits and pieces of abraded branches just building up at the bottom of the lake. And all that take would turn into a coal seam would be compaction very, very rapidly and deeply, exactly what he predicted. The other thing he saw were logs kind of bobbing up and down in a vertical direction. Here's, here's one of these logs. Here's Steve Austin, uh, you know, here's, here's dozens of them. They've become waterlogged at one end, and they're bobbing up and down. This is sonar mapping, where each of these spikes is a tree at the bottom of the lake that's standing in a vertical position. Now, this is what's happening. You know, all this sediment's building up. Some some logs, they just kind of get buried sideways. But other logs, they're heavier at one end, and they'll drop down, and they'll end up standing upright as sediment builds up around them. And another log gets buried at a different level, and another log gets buried at a different level. And... Dr. Austin realized, oh my goodness, this explains a mystery that has been used to ridicule the Bible and Christianity for over a hundred years, and nobody's had a really good answer to it. You see, here is a sign at Yellowstone National Park at an area called Specimen Ridge. Now, this, the, it's showing the landscape looking out into the valley where you've got these big hills filled with sediment that's turned back into rock, and in the midst of the side of these hills, there are all these petrified trees that are standing upright. And then you see this little sign right here. I'm going to blow up on this. This same picture is shown in every geology textbook from the early 1900s all the way up into the, about the 2000 time frame. So about 100 years, this has been an illustration proving you can't believe what the Bible has to say about the age of the earth. And this is their explanation on this hillside, and we're talking 800 feet of sediment, okay, from top to bottom, you find all these petrified trees that have been snapped off. They're still standing upright, but they've, actually, they've just been snapped off. Yellowstone's a very volcanic area. It always has been, as far as we know, since that area formed. Uh, so they speculate that way back when, you know, 100,000 years ago or more, there was a volcanic eruption and snapped off a bunch of trees, just like at Mount St. Helens. And then ash settled around them. And eventually it turned into soil and a new layer of trees, a new forest grew. And it might have taken, you know, a thousand years for a whole new forest to form. And then those got snapped off. And another thousand years later, there was another forest. And those got snapped off. And another thousand years later, there's another forest. And you can identify 32 sequential forests through here. So there has to be at least 30,000 years of earth history to explain this. So you present this to students and it looks very, very convincing. Nobody had a better explanation. The explanation fits the data. And the students come away from that thinking, what's this thing about 6,000 years ago God created the earth? Where does that fit into this when here's 30,000 years of earth history right in front of our face? And they walk away from any trust in anything else the Bible has to say. Well, Turns out, when you look at these trees, you see the roots are just broken off. None of the roots extend on back into the sediment layers. And Steve Austin realized, no, the reason those trees are sticking up at different levels is because you had thousands of feet of water, and trees are dropping out like they did at Spirit Lake with all the sediment that's washing in around them. And tree after tree, layer after layer builds up. 800 feet deep, forming this enormous valley. Here's another view, looking down into that valley. And this, I, I actually took this picture. This is a long way down into this valley down here. Uh, matter of fact, when you look across the valley, see how the root bundles are just broken off? When you look across the valley, see this ridge and where I'm standing are made up of the same rock layers and the same sediment. Water came flushing through this valley and flushed all that sediment out of the, out of there later in the flood. But all this sediment was laid down during the flood. And these trees were buried at different levels all the way down into the valley. It would take floodwaters of worldwide proportions to create fossil layers of that extent. But everything agrees with it. They, once uh, this was proposed, they went back, they discovered the tree rings from different layers, trees here and trees way up here and trees way down here, they essentially had the same growth pattern, the same pattern of of growth, different years. They found out the trees lying horizontal statistically seemed to be laying in the same flow direction, forest after forest after forest. Since when do trees always fall down in the same direction? See, everything in the rope bundles were all broken off, and there wasn't soil layer between the different layers of forests. They've taken down that sign at Yellowstone National Park because they now know it couldn't have happened the way they said but they haven't replaced it with a sign that says this 800 foot of sediment had to have been laid down rapidly and sequentially because there had to have been a flood of worldwide proportions in this area. That doesn't get talked about. Um, this is where I want to wrap up, and, and, and then I just want to encourage you to, to make a difference. Go ahead and bring the lights up if you would. Well, not yet. One more thing. This is, none of this surprises God. You know, 2,000 years ago, I think he made one of the most profound prophecies of the whole Bible. And it, it clues us in because it says scoffers will come in the last days. Okay? So this, oh, wow. This, has, this deals with the wrapping up period of earth history. And this is what these scoffers, this is their way of thinking. This is the kind of things they'll say. All things have continued as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, that is a philosophical way of thinking about things. That's the way every geologist student is trained to think. There have been millions of years in the past. The things we see happening today are the same sort of things that have happened back then. They're the same things that will happen into the future. Nothing ever really changes in any significant way. Current processes are what explain the past. It's the exact opposite of what God says. He says, remember the mighty acts of God. Then you'll understand why the earth looks the way it does. You leave the flood out of your thinking. It's a one time event. Nothing like it has ever happened since or ever will happen again. Then you start to understand the rock layers and why they look the way they do. So that and they will choose to forget that by the word of God the earth was made out of water. That's a reference to creation. Okay? That you know, the Spirit of the Lord hovered over the waters of the deep at the beginning of creation. And the second thing they will choose to absolutely ignore is that the world that then existed perished being flooded by water, the worldwide flood. A sign that we are in the wrapping up period of all earth history is when there will be a widespread denial that we have a creator and a widespread denial that there's ever been a worldwide flood. You know, that's only been in the last 100 to 150 years. Remember I said there's over 300 flood legends? Every culture of the world acknowledged there's been a flood upon this planet right up until the 1800s. Every culture on the planet acknowledged there is a creator. They may have thought the creator is part of creation and worship creation as worshiping the creator, but they still acknowledge some sort of creator exists. It's only been in the academic environment of the last probably 50 years there's been this total rejection of the existence of God as the cause of why everything exists. We are, right now, in our lifetime, in what God is telling us as this final period of earth history. I don't know if it'll last another year or another 50 years, uh, but I know we need to be very, very busy getting the truth in front of people. And I want to end by again encouraging to get these books into the hands of other people. They make a difference in people's thinking. But... We live in a visual video-driven age, and I've spent the last year pouring all of my resources into th- putting 30 years of teaching into taking things like this and making them way more visual than I just did with a bunch of PowerPoint slides. And I want to show you just the, the 90-second introduction to this series, and, and they're $20 for six hours of teaching. Six, sun, it runs as a Sunday school class, a small group class, homeschool class. You can impact the thinking of 100 people in another church if you send something like this and encourage friends and family and children that are in other churches. Use this as a class in your church. Because this stuff is convincing when people have a chance to actually see it. Let me show you the intro to this this series. It's called The Rocks Cry Out. And I think we've got to do things really well in this day and age. We can't just produce shoddy stuff. So I've hired a full-time college graduate to help me produce these materials. An issue of can you trust God's word or not and even if we're ridiculed even if we're made fun of even if we're disbelieved we've got to keep the truth in front of people cosmology geology Biology, the three major areas of science. God is the one who did it all. And those acknowledging that the Bible is true have dropped from about 50% to only about a third. And furthermore, about 4,000 churches close every year in America. If this was a business, we would be in crisis mode. And the reason is... God's word is being rejected from the beginning. So hang in there as we follow through on this class, and we continue to start to walk through what science and reality really shows us about the accuracy of God's word. Okay, go ahead and bring the lights up. Now we've got about. We usually wrap up about eight thirty, so we've got fifteen minutes for questions. This series isn't just about geology and rocks. You know, one session will be about dating methods in the age of the earth. One session is about biology. Another session might be about genetics. A session might be about, you know, the wonders of creation that have led to inventions all over the earth. I have 18 of them planned ultimately, and six of them are done and ready to put to use. So um, I just encourage you that this is a way to impact people's thinking, and I I know it makes a difference. So, questions? Questions? And nothing, I mean, I didn't touch on dinosaurs and I didn't touch on all the variety of life and how things spread out after the flood and so on. But any questions, good. No, sorry, it's not a question, it's a comment. Uh, I was watching one of those uh, um, programs on TV and they were in uh, a desert in Africa mm-hmm. and they found fossil remains And their explanation, there used to be a shallow sea there. Well, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm going to get into that next week. You know, 75% of all the land surfaces that are exposed around the world are covered with what are called sedimentary rock. The key word is sediment. See, all fossils have been formed underwater. They know that. Nobody denies it. They've all been formed underwater. They just, they have to have enormous periods of time to explain it without God. Mm-hmm. So they come up with the idea of, oh, you know, calm seas yeah. or riverbeds carried the fossils there or yeah. rivers transported the sediment. Uh, next week, we're going to start to show how that, that couldn't possibly be true. Those explanations don't work. They don't fit the way things look. At home, I have a book that shows a picture of a little doll that was embedded in coal. Yeah, I think it's called the Napa doll. I think that's where it was found, I've seen that. And also I have a little jar of ash that fell in Caldwell, Idaho. Yeah, yeah. From from Mount St. Helens. Helens. Yeah, I have someone gave me a jar. And people having time. lung problems because they were inhaling yep. that ash. Yeah. It's Very like fine. cement in their lungs. Oh yeah. It just the water combines with it. That's why that rock would resolidify. And uh, it's um, for sure. Um, just let me address that little doll he he referred to. We 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 have definitely found anomalies. What that an anomaly is something that is found in the rock layer that based on evolutionary thinking shouldn't be there. And yet it is. Um, but you, you know, people are creative. You can always come up with a way of hanging on to your belief. You understand? If it's a belief and not reality, then you just modify the explanation in order to hang on to the belief. They will say things like that doll, uh, there must have been an incursion. You know, somehow... Some sediment at some point just carried it down deeper, and therefore it ended up at a deeper layer, and therefore that's how it got there. And, and if you th- an explanation's thrown out, and it's repeated over and over again, and everybody just accepts it. Um, next week I'll be talking about some of those kind of explanations that are given for the rock layers, um, and, and, and yet they turn out to be totally wrong. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit more about... Last week we talked about soft tissue, stuff that you can actually like pieces of our, your skin or parts of a, you know, a, a chicken bone that, that have like uh, ligaments or uh, gristle attached to it, and you can stretch it. It's still stretchy. We found that st- kind of stuff inside of dinosaur bones. Undeniably, totally documented evidence. Nobody can deny it's part of that dinosaur. Well, we're told the dinosaur died 60 million years ago, <coughs> so how could that stuff still be soft? Uh, it can't only if it was buried fairly recently. And um, I'll I'll mention, if I have time, especially the last week, how folks who want to hang on to their belief in the time frame have come up with some crazy idea to explain how it could have lasted that long. But it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Okay.
1: Yeah, r- looking at our world today, we see snow, rain, or whatever. It creates erosion on the mountains right. oh, and does, so forth. no, it does, without a doubt. But when you look at the layers, when you look at you the rock at layers, layers, they're nice and smooth. My Very question good. is, how <clears throat> what is the reasoning of evolutionists, how you could have these ro- each of these rock layers that represent millions of years, supposedly, yeah. of, of
0: time... How come there's no erosion in those layers? Yeah, and I wish I had... I'll talk a little... I'll have some illustrations to go with that next. Next week I'm going to hit like seven examples of how we know the rock layers of the earth were laid down rapidly and sequentially with no missing time in between. The um, evolution believers uh, and and geologists, um, they they will admit there are certain things they, they... don't really, can't explain very well. They, I mean, you do see, you you go to the Great, anybody who's seen pictures or been to the Grand Canyon, you look up and down the, the, you see very flat lines between all of these different layers, all up and down the valley, just flat line. You look at any place when you go driving around the country, you know, Tennessee, the Appalachians, Ohio, Pennsylvania, heading out west, you don't see flat layers. No place do you see a perfectly pool-table flat layer of sediment. You see up and down hills and valleys and rivers and and stuff. And it's because just what you said, wind and rain and erosion, even in a matter of a few thousand years, transforms a landscape into these up up and down peaks and valleys and topography. This is what they'll do. They'll say there have been catastrophes in Earth history. There have been multiple catastrophes. Um, dozens and dozens of periods where, you know, an uh, asteroid hits the Earth, formed a tidal wave, and that water came and it sheared off an area and left a flat surface. But then millions of years passed before the next layer would lay down on top of that p- flat surface. Uh, now, notice what I just said. I said they've, they've explained they've supposedly where the flat surface came from, but they still need the millions of years. And they didn't explain why over those millions of years you don't now start to get the peaks and valleys again. Uh, But that just gets glossed over. Or more commonly, uh, just because we've pointed out a problem with their system of analyzing the rock layers doesn't prove they're wrong. They will almost all, and they'll use a lot of fancy words for it. They'll say this requires further study. New analysis might reveal things. Future discoveries will, will will help us explain it. More modeling might make a difference. They basically put hold their feet to the fire and say, "So what you were really saying is you have you acknowledge you can't explain the way things are now, but you have faith that some way in the day in the future you'll be able to." So you really are basing what you're saying as a fact on faith, and ultimately that's what's ultimately I can't prove creation. Nobody can prove. One day there wasn't an animal, and the next day there was. There, there's, there is faith in, in you know, Christianity. And, but I think it's a logical faith based on the evidence we can see all around us. Whereas theirs is faith in future discoveries, because what we see around us contradicts what they want to believe. And, and I think that's fair. You need to hold, hold people who have that belief system to what they're really saying. Driving on the New York State Thruway through the Adirondack Mountains, you'll see f- rock folds where the rocks have folded. Now, if they were laid down in layers, those rock folds should be cracked. That's number two but on my list n- next week. They're <laughs> nice and smoothly, yeah. so they had to. Yeah. They had to be folded they, while the right. rock was soft. And and I'll get into that next week. Yeah, that's that's a very very strong evidence. I've got some. St- stunning pictures of exactly what you're showing. And then I'm, I'm going to actually demonstrate what we're talking about. So if you don't mind, I'm going to save that till next week. But yeah, the fact there are rock layers that are smoothly folded is, is one of those evidences that there weren't millions of years forming them.
1: Well,
0: yeah, so, I, oh. well, wait, one more back here.
1: I just wanted to bring up what you were saying before. So when they have a flaw in their thinking, they say, well, just have faith, future discoveries will They do don't us use right. those words, but that is what they're saying but then they'll they'll present a shaky theory about something and say, "Well, this is evidence that creation didn't exist right.
0: don't so expect don't fair play right don't expect Satan to play fair and we're 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 fighting against principalities and powers, not against human intellect and people uh yeah." yeah. I believe it's 2 Peter 3, verse 3 says, have a reason for the faith that's within you for anybody who asks. Um, You you know what? Pounding someone over the head with the evidence for creation will probably never bring them to the truth. Um, But for a significant number of people, this is the stumbling block because they've never had a chance to hear any other viewpoint and they've been blinded to the truth. But that verse goes on to say, you do it with meekness and humbleness. Uh, not with arrogance and, and hate. And then it can have an impact. So. Good place to wrap up? One more. Oh,
1: one more. Uh, how did they come up with the concept of carbon dating and they look at something and say, oh, that was formed two million, two, 28 million years ago or 2 million yep. years ago? I'm going to
0: talk. Week four, I'm going to talk about carbon dating, I'm going to talk about radiometric dating, and they're two different things. And then I'm going to talk about dating methods in general, I'm going to talk about all the ways of figuring out how old things are, Uh, I'm going to force you to come back for that. But by the way, I refer to it in number six of the video of the Rocks Cry Out Lessons, Uh, and also all the books talk about that. But uh, bottom line, carbon dating sounds really, really logical and really, really conclusive on the surface. But it doesn't measure time. It measures the amount of some chemical in something that used to be alive. And if you don't know the amount you started out with, you're going to come to the wrong date. And I'll I'll explain that much more simply in in two weeks. All right. Thank you, everybody, for coming out tonight. So, So, very good.